One of the dangers that we face in the church, uh, in life in the church, is when it comes to following Jesus, we have this tendency to swing too far to one side or another on important things within the life of the church. So often we'll be pulled and have this tension on us to go too far in this direction or in this direction, depending on what you're talking about, right? And, and constantly we're trying to pull against that tension and stay balanced so that we don't fall in unhealthy extremes. So, so let me give you some examples so that you know what I mean. If you grew up in the church, many of us who grew up in the church grew up with a very legalistic understanding about God and about the gospel and what it means to be related to God. And so we swung all the way to one side where we thought everything about our relationship with God depended upon us and what we did and what we didn't do and our prayers and how often we read the Bible, how often we went to church. And so everything became about how we performed. Then many of us discovered the gospel and grace, and we, we began to realize that the good news was that we couldn't ever do anything that was required by God, the way that God required it, and that Jesus came into the world and lived the life we were supposed to live, and died for us because we didn't live that perfect life, and gave his righteousness to us, and rose again, and it's all by grace, it's a gift that you receive, it's not anything that you do. And so we received that good news, and some of us went all the way to the other extreme and said, so now it doesn't matter what you do. You never have to read the Bible. You never have to pray. You never have to go to church because it's all grace, baby. You're just completely covered, right? There, there's nothing to do. And so the, the tension is not to go this far where if you miss one day of the Bible, you feel like you're done because the relationship with God is all based on you, nor to go this far where you go, we don't have anything to do because Jesus died for us. The, the tension is to go, what we are to say is this is by grace, not through our works. We could never do anything to earn God's favor. But because we've received it as a free gift, we want to do everything for God and do so with diligence and effort and break a sweat in trying to follow him the right way. You can talk about evangelism versus social justice. Same thing. So some people will say, what the world needs is the proclamation of God's message and gospel. We ought to be the kind of people that speak about God and tell people about Jesus. And words are required. And others would say, no, 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 what the world needs is not more words, but deeds. What you've got to do is show the world the love of Jesus by the things that you do. It's feeding the poor and visiting those in prison and caring for widows and orphans. That's how you demonstrate to the world the love of Jesus. These guys would say, don't you know that the scriptures say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You can feed them all you want, but they need their soul to be right through through witnessing and evangelism. These guys would say, but James says, if you see a brother and say, I'm praying for you, but don't give him a coat if he's cold, what good is your prayer? Deeds is what's needed. And we'd say to both, no, or yes, we need you both. We need word and deed in order to demonstrate the message and mercy of Jesus. We could have the same thing when we come to church. Some of us will say, you know what worship and singing is really supposed to be? It's theological truths, and we're supposed to sing rich theology and doctrine, and our words matter, and we ought to sing things that are true to God. And some of us would say, what we ought to do is God is living and real, and we have to experience God and be stirred in our worship and have an experience with God when we worship. And these guys would say, all you care about are feelings. What we need is truth. And these guys would say, all you care about is dotting the I's and crossing the T's. God is living and active, and you've got to experience him. And what would we say? Both. 
We want to sing songs that are theologically true and rich and deep, and at the same time, we want those truths not to bounce off our dead hearts, but to cause our hearts to be stirred and our emotions affected so that we worship God passionately in light of these truths. We're, we're trying hard not to swing one way or the other way too far to the extreme. I could probably, we could probably talk all day with different examples like those. But, but here's what I want you to hear. That same truth is true when we talk about mission, particularly when we talk about global mission versus local mission. When we talk about what we need to do here versus what needs to be done way out there, over there. When we talk about reaching the globe and the nations for Jesus versus reaching our neighbors and our city for Jesus. And again, you find that there's this temptation in your heart to go one extreme or the other. And so some will come to this side and say, listen, God is the God of the nations, of the globe. Jesus died to redeem the whole world. And they would come and say, do you not know that there are over two and a half billion unreached people? By that we mean people who have no witness of the gospel, no church to go to. No one's ever come and told them consistently or regularly about Jesus. They have no opportunity to hear the gospel. Two and a half billion people. Some of you grew up for 30 years you've gone to church. And 40 years every Sunday someone's taught you the Bible and told you about Jesus. Two and a half billion people have never heard his name and are daily slipping into eternity with no one telling them the good news of God, his salvation, forgiveness, grace in Jesus Christ. And so they would say, do you not see the need for global missions, overseas missions? I had a missionary who told me once, if ten men are pushing a log and seven are on one side and three are on the other, what side are you going to go and help? And that's a good point. When we come to our city, there's a, a church on every block. And so this side would say to us, listen, there are places that have no churches, no missions, no people who know Jesus. That's where missions is. Some of us would swing to the other side and say, why would we concern ourselves with global missions? Why would we go across the globe if we are not yet ready to go across the street? How are you going to reach distant lands and unreached people groups if you cannot talk to your neighbor about Jesus? And some would say, mission starts right here, where we live and work and eat and play. This is where the gospel is needed. And you've got to be a witness, as Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so mission starts right here. Not to mention that America is now the fourth largest mission field in the world. That countries are sending missionaries to America now. Not to mention that as each year the population increases, churches decline in America. 4,000 churches close every year in America. And it is not kept keeping up with the growth in population. 4,000 churches are closing every year. And so if ever there was a time for us to plant churches and be on mission right where we live, this would be the time. And so the extremes would be, again, global mission is what God is about. No, 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 local mission is what God is about. And so we'd ask and enter into the conversation and say, so which is it? Which is it that God wants you to be about? Which is it that God wants your life to be about and our church to be about? That, that's like me asking you, 
Which eye would you rather have, your right eye or your left eye? And you would say back, don't make me choose. I, I need both and I want both. And the answer to our question this morning is also, do you know what God is concerned about? Both. We, we want to be about what God is about, and what God is about is both. God is about His glory being known to the ends of the earth and to the ends of this city that you live in. That's what God is about. So here's the thing. Whether it's over there or whether it's over here, if you belong to Jesus, you've been sent on mission. That's without a doubt. In fact, that's what this word mission means that we talk about all the time. It's just a Latin word for sent, that we are sent by Jesus like the Father sent Jesus. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus has sent us to the ends of our city and to the ends of the world. There, there's no question of whether you've been called to mission. Whether that's over there or whether that's over here, each of us have been called to mission. And so here's what we want to do. Last week, we talked about mission and prayer, particularly about our city. If you were here last week, you heard us preach through Jeremiah 29. And you heard Jeremiah, God say through the prophet Jeremiah, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And we said, what God wants us to do, many of us to do, is plant roots and settle down and build homes and raise families and seek the good of this city. Pray for the peace, the shalom, the well-being of, of Philadelphia and, and wherever you live and seek its welfare. And, and I would ask you, I hope that in this week, Philadelphia or Ben Salem or Willow Grove or Devon or wherever it is you're coming here from has found its way into your prayer life this week. I hope that, because otherwise I would, I would just console us or, or confront us by God's word that says, are we just hearing the word and deceiving ourselves, or are we doing what it says, right? If, if week in and week out we are gathering to hear the word and go out and think we're better for it, James would tell us we're deceiving ourselves. What good does it, it, does it do for a, a sick person to go to the doctor grab the prescription and put it in his pocket and think that he's better for having gone to the doctor. It's by, by swallowing that pill that he's made well. So likewise, James would counsel us and confront us and warn us that if we merely hear the word and do not do what it says, we are merely engaging in self-deception. That each week, gathering here and hearing things makes us better. No, it's doing what it says that God would require. So, so we ask ourselves... Lord, are we praying for the city that you have sent us into exile into and seeking its welfare? But we want to balance what we said last week with saying this. But not only is our mission, Seven Mile Road's mission, your life's mission, and prayers about this place here, but all places everywhere, to the ends of the earth. That God's call on Seven Mile Road Church, like it is to all churches, is local and global missions. So to that end, we'll turn to Psalm 67, the passage that Nate read for us. It's a great passage of Scripture, a great text that gives us a vision for the nations, a, a vision for global missions, a good prayer that we can pray for the ends of the earth. Many have called Psalm 67 a missionary psalm or a missionary prayer, and it gives us language that we can pray 
as we think about our mission to the ends of the earth. Turn to Psalm 67. While you turn there, let's turn our attention also to the Lord in prayer. Ask him for help, and then we'll consider Psalm 67 together. Our God, be gracious to us this morning to come and speak to us by your word. We have not gathered to hear the opinions of fallen and weak men, but rather the eternal and permanent truths of God. Your word has lasting power. We think about the psalm that we're about to look at. It was written thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, B.C., before Christ, in one corner of the world that didn't even know the bigness of this world. And yet the word of God has had permanent staying power so that it has something important to say to us, even now, 2012 Philadelphia. So come bring the truth of your word to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Make much of Jesus and give us the grace to not just hear the word, but do what it says. It will be for your glory. It will be for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 67 begins with this tiny little bit of print right above the psalm. It's the superscript, and it says this, before verse 1, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. That little superscript just tells us that this psalm, this prayer that was written by the psalmist, was actually a song that would be sung by God's people. It would be accompanied by instruments. It was singing. We would gather together and sing this psalm. And the psalm, since it's a song, is sort of broken up into different stanzas. If you'll notice verses 3 and 5 in the psalm, you'll notice that the refrain is repeated. The, The lines are said over and over again. And those two verses sort of mark for us what stanza 1 and stanza 2 is. Verses 3 and 5 are sort of markers for us. So let's consider the first stanza in verses 1 and 2. The first thing Psalm 67 tells us is this, that, that mission sends us out. As we hear verses 1 and 2, I, I want you to keep in the back of your mind, mission sends us out. Look at verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. If you've been with us throughout this preaching series, one week we preached on the idea that when we get tongue-tied in prayer and don't know what we ought to pray, God has given us a great help. We don't need to struggle for words because we said that the scriptures themselves, the Bibles that we hold, give us language by which we can pray. We said that the word that we read can be the words that we pray. That when we don't know how to form our prayers, we can allow the scriptures to shape and inform and give language to our prayers. That's a biblical practice. The people of the scriptures have often used the Bible itself by which to pray. And that's what you see in verses 1 and 2. In fact, when you read verse 1 and 2, what the psalmist has done is he's taken these two great passages of the Bible and he's brought them together and allowed these two passages to shape his prayer. What you're reading in verses 1 and 2 is two passages of Scripture that he brings together and he prays it, right? What, what they do is they'd open the Bible, they'd find promises from God, and they'd bring those promises to God in prayer, So they got one finger on the Bible, one hand in heaven, and they'd hold God by his garment and say, God, in prayer, I'm asking you to do what I just read here. Fulfill your word. It's a great way to pray, a a way we can pray, which is to find God's promises 
and to bring them to God in prayer. That's what he does here. This first sentence, hear it again. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. That was something that the psalmist borrowed from the scriptures. In fact, that's a blessing, a benediction that God said in the book of Numbers to a, pr a priest named Aaron. It, you perhaps have heard it before. The blessing was this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, the psalmist would have heard that benediction, that blessing his whole life from God's word. And so he takes that piece of God's word and makes it his prayer. He borrows the same language. He says here, indeed, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Right? So he's, he's praying, Lord, do what you promised you would do for our people. That is, you'd be gracious, that you, you wouldn't treat us as we deserve, but that you'd be kinder than we deserve. That you'd bless us and give us what we need for our life and for our families. That you'd make your face shine upon us. And so the psalmist is praying what? Let your face look upon us, God. Don't, don't let it be hidden in anger. Don't let it be turned away in disinterest. But let your face shine upon us. Let us bask in the light that comes from your face. Right? It's, it's important to notice even what he's praying. He's not just praying for stuff from God's hands. He's praying for God's face. Think about that for a second. The great prayer that Israel would have sang together is not give us more stuff from your hands, but give us your face, O oh God. The great blessing that they're after together as a people is not just his trinkets and toys, but him himself. It's you, God. It's your grace, your blessings, and your face that we want. But then verse 2 tells us why he's praying for that blessing, why the psalmist is asking for that. It's may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, verse 2, so that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. For the first sentence, he went to Numbers and borrowed a line given to Aaron. For the second sentence, he goes to Genesis and borrows a promise given to Abraham. This idea of bless us so that through us all the nations might be blessed. That's borrowed from Genesis. You see, in Genesis, God had come to this one man named Abraham. And God had picked Abraham out of the whole planet and all peoples. And God set Abraham apart and God made a promise to Abraham, a covenant. He told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to do something great in your life. I'm going to do something special and unique that I've never done for anyone else. And I'm going to bless you and your people and your descendants. And I'm going to make your name great. So great that thousands of years later, they're going to still talk about you. In distant lands, they're going to still know the name of Abraham. And you think about that. That's happening right now. I'm in Philadelphia in 2012. And you all know the name Abraham. You know his story. God kept that promise of, I'm going to make you great. And I'm going to do something unique and special with you. I'm going to bless you. Except if you read Genesis 12, there's a line that comes after that, which is, I'm going to make you great and bless you so that through you, all the families of the earth might be blessed. That's the promise. It's not, Abraham, I'm going to pour out all these good things so that all these blessings terminate on you, so that you and your people can just drink up my goodness forever. It's rather, I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the families of the earth 
might be blessed. That's God's heart from the beginning. His heart is for all the nations to be blessed. And so he elects and selects and chooses this one man and his descendants so that they would be the vehicle by which he extends his blessings to the ends of the earth. Right? He picks this one people group so that through them, God might display who he is to the ends of the earth, that all nations to every corner of the earth might know who God is. And that's what Israel is praying in Psalm 67. They're taking these two promises together and they're saying, Oh God, indeed, bless us and be gracious to us and make your face shine upon us so that through us, your power and your salvation might be known to the ends of the earth. That's what God's people pray, which is, God, let us indeed be your special people and indeed overwhelm us with your grace and indeed bless us and indeed let your face shine upon us not so that we can enjoy it within our four walls, but in that blessing, it might be known to the ends of the earth, that all nations might know that you're good because you've been good to us, that all nations might know you've been the light of the world because your light has shined on our faces, that all nations might be blessed because you blessed us. Bless us so that we might be a blessing. That's the first principle I'd have you hear from Psalm 67 is that God blesses you so that you might be a blessing. You have to hear that. God did not bless you the way that he has so that all these blessings would swirl around until it terminates on you. God blessed you the way that he has so that he might use you as a channel by which he intends to bless the nations, bless the ends of the earth. That's God's heart, that every good thing and every bit of grace and every bit of blessing that he's poured into your life was given so that it might be channeled through you to the ends of the earth. That's what mission does. Mission has this outward push. The first thing we said was mission sends you out. It pushes out. Psalm 67 is this prayer that says, give here so that it's pushed out to the ends of the earth. And that's what God had been doing from the beginning. If you flipped quickly through your Bible, what would you find? In the beginning, God calls Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So his vision is for the whole earth to be filled with sons and daughters that would know God. Genesis 3, they sin, the whole vision is broken. These sons and daughters become enemies of God rather than children of God. And yet God still pursues them, so that by Genesis 12, he calls Abraham and says, all right, I'm going to start again. I'm going to bless you so that through you all the families of the earth might be blessed. Then Israel, Abraham's descendants, are given the same task. That's what we're reading in Psalm 67. I'm going to bless you so that all nations might know of me through you. When you keep reading in your Bible, one son is born to the people of Israel, the man Jesus Christ. And God sends him into the world so that it might be through him that all the families of the earth are blessed. When that God-man, Jesus Christ, dies and rises again and goes to heaven, he tells his disciples that till I return, you now have that mission. And you've been sent to the ends of the earth so that all the families of the earth might be blessed through you. We, hear this, even us, Seven Mile Road, even us, our small church, is caught up in this story that God's been doing from the beginning, that God intends to bless the nations 
through Seven Mile Road Church. That's the, the day that we live in. We've inherited that mission. We are the sent ones by which God intends to bless the world. This is the day that we live in. We live in the day where 2.5 billion people or more have never even heard of Jesus' name. Think of that. Two-thirds of the world do not know Jesus. What is that? Four, five billion people. Four, five billion people do not know of hope in Christ or salvation in Christ. I heard a preacher once quote Joseph Stalin, who is not often quoted by preachers or in sermons. But it's a great quote. Hear this from Joseph Stalin. Let him teach you today. It says, The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. That's a good quote. The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic. You know of one young life that was snuffed out, disease, an accident, it's a tragedy. We know of premature death. They didn't get to live out their life. We know of the heartbreak of losing someone close to us. One death is a tragedy. But when you hear four, five billion people are in the dangers of the fire of hell, you don't flinch. I don't flinch. Because that's just, that number is too big to cause any kind of emotion. It doesn't stir us. And I tell you, there's not any amount of preaching I can do to you or to my own heart. The Holy Spirit of God himself has to come and somehow put a burden on our hearts for what that means. Only the Spirit of God could actually cause us to flinch at the thought that there's five billion people for whom going to hell would be every bit as tragic as if your son or daughter went there or as if you went there. Only the Spirit of God could stir us out of our slumber and soften us out of our hardship and, and move us out of our apathy at the thought that there are that many people and God has done something about it. He sent his son and now has sent you so that through you all the families of the earth might be blessed. The first thing that Psalm 67 tells us is that mission sends us out. That's our call. Bless us, O Lord, so that through us all the families of the earth might be blessed. Look at the second stanza quickly with me. It's verses 3 to 5. The second thing that Psalm 67 would have for us is that mission is all about joy. Mission sends us out, but mission is all about joy. Look at verses 3 to 5. It says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Because you've blessed us and been gracious to us and made your face shine upon us, we're going to praise you. In fact, though, as this is going out through all the nations, let all the nations, let all peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let them praise you as they know you to be judge and as they know you to be guide. Let all the peoples praise you. He prays, in fact, for the joy of all the nations. Do you see that in verse 4? Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And here's the, the second thing I would have us hear about mission. Mission is all about joy. That's what mission is. Mission is the joy of God in my heart, overflowing the banks of my heart that it might fill joy in your heart. 
My joy is increased as I think about this God and share Him. Your joy is increased as you think about this God and receive Him. Mission is all about joy. It's not this lifeless, joyless obligation. It's the overflow of joy. If you have non-Christian friends who will be honest with you, I think many of them would say to you, I have no problem with you being a Christian. You want to believe that? That is fine with me. The only thing that bothers me about Christians is, why do you think I need to believe that? Right? I think if our non-Christian friends were honest with us, if you asked and talked with your non-Christian friends, they might tell you, I have no problem with all Christians. Let, let many be Christians, no problem. But why do you feel the need to share that with people and hope that other people will believe like you believe? I think many of, us, many of them would say to us, why don't you just mind your own business and let people live? One preacher rightly said, the problem with that is, you're asking Christians to do what you would never ask anyone else to do. Because everyone else, the natural impulse of your heart is, you're going to share joy. Everyone does that. It's the reason you tell people, you got to go to that restaurant. Right? Because the moment you find something good, your first impulse is to share that with someone else. All of you know that. Shainu loves photography. To me, eh, I, I don't really care about photography. But for her, she loves it. Right? I love football. To Shainu, bleh, she doesn't really care about it, right? But we're caught up in this eternal struggle of trying to win the other, right? So every time the kids look nice, she'll put a camera in my hand and say, could you take a picture? You take good pictures, and you'll love how it looks. And every time there's a great play, I go, Shainu, Shainu, you've got to come see this. this. This is amazing, right? Now, do either of us respond to the other and say, how dare you Try to put your joy on me and make me happy. How dare you try to make me joyful? No. She might like it, she might not, but each of us are, are in this pursuit of maximizing our own joy when it finds root in the heart of another person. And pursuing the joy of another, that's the struggle that we're engaged in. We want so badly for our joy to be filled as it finds its root in your heart. This is why you don't get married in a room by yourself. You call friends because your joy is increased when others share that joy with you. This is why you send out announcements of new homes and new jobs and new babies and new life things. Every good thing that happens to you, no one tucks that into themselves. Everyone shares it. Because my joy is increased when it finds its place in your heart. And I'm pursuing your joy through sharing it. Go home and read Facebook. You know what Facebook is? It's global evangelism. Because everybody on Facebook is en engaged in the enterprise of evangelism. Everyone's sharing news. Here's what I think you should think about. Here's what I think you should hear. Here's some good things that happened to me. Here's some good things that happened to another. And the entire status update world is what? Come share in my joy. Come rejoice in this for you as well. Right? All these things of new homes, new jobs. Here's someone's birthday. Here's someone's anniversary. Is what? There's joy in my heart. And there's joy for you if you'll receive that as well. Everyone is evangelizing one another. If you've ever said, you got to try this, you got to taste that, you got to go here, you got to check that out, you got to watch that, you got to read that, 
All mission is, all mission is, is the conviction that God is our highest joy. All mission is, is saying, you know what? I think I have something better than ice cream or food or a new restaurant or, or a movie or a book. Mission is simply saying, God has become my highest joy. And I am not going to have joy until that finds its root in your heart. And I really think it's going to find joy for you as well. This is why if we're not on mission, the first thing to do is not slap our wrists and say, i got to be a better evangelist. The first thing to do is, do I have joy in God? No one has to force you to share other good news in your life. And I'm saying this to myself. And the first question we've got to ask is, do I still get the gospel? Is the good news still good news for me? Or has it grown stale and old? Because if it's good news in my heart this morning, then it's going to find a way to be shared. That hopefully will not sound like guilt to you, but hopefully will be an encouragement to go back and drink the gospel till it delights your soul in such a way that it would push you out. The psalmist here is convinced that as God is gracious to him and blesses him and makes his face shine upon him, that's good for everybody. And he's convinced that if everybody would come to know who God is, then all the peoples will praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. He goes on to say, when they come to know that you're the judge who righteously judges the world and and you're the guide that guides the nations, they're going to praise you. He he describes God here in two ways, as as a judge and a guide, or that word guide could also be shepherd. And he says, "When, when they know that you are judge and you are guide or shepherd, they're going to praise you. Right? His vision of God is, is a, a judge who rightly determines what's right and wrong and a shepherd. And he, and he marries those two things together. This is who the true God is. He, he's not always just cradling us so that it doesn't matter what's right and wrong. No, he's a righteous judge. But he's also not just this angry, vindictive dictator who cares about right and wrong. He's a shepherd who guides us. And, and he marries these two to say that's who the true God is. And when you come to know him as being both holy and loving, righteous and merciful, all the nations will praise him. That's who God is. If you've got a God who is only loving and doesn't care what you do, that's not true. If you've got a God who's only angry and ready to strike you down, that's not true. But this God who is both judge and shepherd, when the nations come to know him, the psalmist is convinced, then all peoples will praise you. The ends of the earth will fear you. Mission is sending us out, but mission is also about joy. And the last thing, as he thinks about the prospect of all peoples praising you, that comes to verse 7. And to our third and last thing that I'd have you hear, which is mission will come to an end. Mission is about sending us out. Mission is all about joy. Mission will come to an end. Look at verse 6 and 7. He begins to think about the prospect of all peoples praising God, and this is what he says. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's the last two verses. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Psalm 67 is sort of sandwiched in between a number of psalms that are talking about harvest and harvest time. And here at the end of verse, seven, verse 6, he says, the earth has yielded its increase. He, he pictures this great harvest. And he thinks, as God has been good to us and given us this harvest, there is a great harvest yet to come. 
He, he's sort of in springtime and he begins to think there's a final and full spring that is yet to come. And he thinks about the distant day when all the ends of the earth shall fear God. As he speaks about this language about the earth, it's almost like in Genesis, God had cursed the earth after sin. And now in Psalm 67, he's saying, but the earth is going to yield its increase. So God is redeeming and undoing this curse. And just like the earth will be redeemed, so also these sons and daughters of Adam who were lost will be redeemed. All the ends of the earth will fear him. It's the day of that final harvest, the day of that great spring. It's like in C.S. Lewis's books, if you've read through Narnia, when the great King Aslan is on the move, suddenly winter is going to melt away, and that final and good and full and eternal spring is coming. And in, in Psalm 67, he begins to think of that distant day when all the ends of the earth will fear God. And that's his prayer. His prayer is looking forward to the day when this good news of who God is will go out to the ends of the earth. Let me say one last thing and then we'll stop. That prayer of Psalm 67, that prayer is a greater reality in our day than even the day when this psalmist wrote it. I'm, what I'm saying is we know more than even he did when he wrote that prayer. He didn't even know the dimensions of what he was praying the way that you do now. Because here's what's happening with his prayer. That prayer is at the same time happening and yet to happen. That prayer that he's praying is here now and is not yet. It's, it's both already and not yet. The idea is this has happened now and it's yet to come. Right? Let, let me give you an example. When he prays this prayer, he doesn't have a globe. Right? He, he's sitting in Israel and even the farthest imaginations thinks of the ends of the earth as sort of his neighbors around Israel. He doesn't know that there's the corners of Russia or the, the southern tip of Africa or the Americas or South America or, or the distant islands of Japan. He doesn't know any of those things. And yet as broad as his imagination can go, he says, let the ends of the earth fear you, O God. And now we live in the day where, where we know these tips and we know the reach of this gospel. And, and we begin to think that this man who prayed, let all these people become a part of Abraham's family, didn't even know how big and broad his prayer was going to be and how far and wide it was going to go and how many people truly would be caught up in the net of God's kingdom and gospel. When he prayed, let the ends of the earth fear you, O God, I don't even think he knew how big this thing would go and get through Jesus Christ. You see, they were limited even in what they were praying, and yet God answered it more profoundly than they could have imagined. To the point that when Jesus died and rose again and was about to ascend into heaven, if you read Acts 1, the disciples are there, they're ready to say goodbye to Jesus. And they say then, at Acts 1, after three and a half years of following Jesus, his death, resurrection, ready to ascend, they go, are you now going to restore Israel? Are you now going to establish the kingdom of Israel? Because even then, they didn't fully get what God was up to. And their thought was, okay, now are you going to make Israel powerful so that all the ends of the earth will come into Israel? So that these lousy Romans would get circumcised and eat kosher and become Jewish like us and now connect with God. And Jesus had to tell them, 
just wait here for a few days. The Holy Spirit will come, and then you'll have power, and you'll understand everything, and you'll be my disciples to the ends of the earth. And that's why the New Testament is caught up in this struggle of, do people have to become Jewish to become God's people? And they're working through this new reality that God has actually done something global. His people are now multi-ethnic and international to the ends of the earth. That Russia and Japan and Africa and, and South America and America and, and China and all these places are a part of what God was doing in the world. I'll give you one example and I'll close. I was listening to this Korean preacher on YouTube. He's preaching to a church in Korea, a mega church of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. So it's this video of this one Korean preacher preaching to thousands of people in Korea. And, and he's preaching in Korean and it's translated on the bottom. So I'm listening to this guy's sermon and he's telling these thousands of people about Israel and about Jesus and about their forefather Abraham. And as I'm watching Koreans speak about Jewish history as though it was their own history, it was, it was mind-blowing to me. All I could keep thinking was, how did the Koreans get in on this? And how, how did they get in on it in so much that they're talking about Abraham like he's their grandfather, like the tribes of Israel is a part of their history and story? How did these thousands of Koreans nodding their head, speaking about Jewish things and, and Jewish Jesus as their Savior and Messiah and Redeemer, how did they get caught up in this whole story? And I kid you not, it's almost as it dawned on me and I looked down and I realized I'm dark brown and, and I'm Indian. I'm as outside this whole thing as the Koreans are. And, and the Americans are too and the Japanese are and the Russians. How did this story become our story? Father Abraham is my father as much as any child born in Israel now, more so through Jesus Christ. And this prayer that Psalm 67 begins to pray, he doesn't even know yet what God is about to do through Jesus Christ. He doesn't know that God was going to send the Messiah into the world. And the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to die, and he was going to set up a kingdom. And this kingdom was not known by ethnicity or race. This kingdom was going to cover the ends of the earth so that all the earth might fear him and revere him. And this psalmist writing in Israel on that hot summer day also had no idea that that Messiah would have a disciple named John who God would send to an island in Patmos and give that disciple a revelation. And he would record it. And, and this psalmist didn't know that that disciple would have this vision of how things will be and that that disciple will record that there's day coming when every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation and language will stream towards a mountain, not Jerusalem, but Mount Zion, and to a throne, not David's, but to the son of David, Jesus. And every tribe and tongue and people would be redeemed, and all the ends of the earth would fear him. Mission sends us out. Mission is all about joy. And in that vision of all the ends of the earth fearing him, in that day, mission will be no more. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do long for that day. And until that day arrives, would you please keep us with our heads down doing the work that you have required to that day. 
Would the vision of that day console us through all the trials we face now? As we talk with people about Jesus and are rejected, as the gospel doesn't seem to spread as fast and quickly as we would like. People don't respond to your grace as often, as quickly as we would like. But we know that your heart is for the nations and that your heart is for the world and all of your people will be redeemed. So send us out from this place to our city and to the ends of the earth that we might be swept up into the great story that you're doing so that people, men, women, and children of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people would be Abraham's sons and daughters through Abraham's great offspring of Jesus who is our great Savior and Redeemer. Holy Spirit, do more than we knew to ask. We do pray together as a church for your world and hear us as a church as we pray for distant peoples and nations and pray that you would send workers from here and every faithful church of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth The harvest is great, the laborers are few, so Lord, we do ask that you would raise up laborers. We pray that in these days and in the days to come, you would put in the heart of men and women sitting in these very chairs a desire to go to the ends of the earth, to reach people who don't know Jesus. Give them a restless desire, O God, to be missionaries to the ends of the earth. And for generations to come, Let Seven Mile Road be a church that sends people to the ends of the earth. Only you can do that. So hear it as we say it from our lips and hearts and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.